This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are commonly seen in our practice if we see older patients. At times, the presenting symptoms can be quite subtle, and it's not uncommon for the diagnosis to take several years to establish. Very often, any symptoms which are noticed are often attributed to the aging process. Although we don't have very good treatment options for dementia, it's still important to diagnose the condition as early as possible. Today, we'll be discussing assessing the older patient with new cognitive symptoms. We'll talk about the usefulness of a mental status exam, the recommended laboratory tests, whether a brain imaging study is indicated, and more with our guest, Dr. Erica Tung, an internist and geriatrician from the Division of Community Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Erica, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. It's always such a pleasure having you as a guest. Oh, it is my great pleasure, and thank you for inviting me, Dr. Chukka. Let's talk about the number of dementia patients. It seems like we're seeing more in our practice. Is dementia becoming more common? Yeah, well, you're you're exactly right. The prevalence of dementia is on the rise, right? So the absolute number of people with dementia is increasing because dementia's number one risk factor is advancing age. And so as our population of older adults increases, the number of people that we see in our practices with cognitive impairment, ranging from mild cognitive impairment to advanced dementia is going to increase. So it's really important that we're all very comfortable making the diagnosis of cognitive impairment and then taking care of people through that journey with cognitive impairment. Well, let's talk about assessing the patient with early cognitive changes. There are normal changes in our memory associated with aging, you know, new learning. And I was reminded of that this weekend when I was trying to play a new video game with my granddaughter. She picked it up a whole lot faster than I did. So let's talk about the normal changes in our memory associated with aging. Yeah, we all experience daily memory lapses. Everybody forgets where they put their car keys or maybe forgets the name of an acquaintance that they see in the grocery store. Those things are normal. And with normal aging, we might have those more of those daily memory lapses and more difficulty with our processing speed or rote memorization. So memorizing a list of tasks might become more difficult. But Despite those changes, we should still be able to do all of our professional and social activities. And so we shouldn't notice a difference in our function based on those normal aging changes. So these cognitive changes don't really change our daily activities. We're able to proceed as usual. Absolutely. So our social interactions shouldn't change, our professional interactions and our success with those interactions shouldn't change. But we might notice that it takes a little bit more time to learn a new video game or a new piece of technology, and that's okay. Okay. I'm reassured. How concerning is it when a patient comes to see us and says they're having problems with their memory? Should we be concerned? I think that when a patient comes in with subjective memory concerns or their family member brings them in, put your antenna up. 
it's important to listen and not chalk those symptoms up to normal aging until we have a sense of the full picture. Number one, because cognitive symptoms are very distressing. And so it's important that we acknowledge that they're having these symptoms and that we take those symptoms really seriously. It's also really important that we fully evaluate them. I have been quite aware of the difference between a patient's spouse, partner, family member who brings them in saying there's memory problems versus what the patient's perception is. And I've never been able to figure out, is that, are they aware of it? Is there significant denial or don't they really appreciate the changes? But a family member's opinion can be quite important. Yeah, the collateral history is so important. And I think everybody experiences this differently. So when a person is developing new cognitive symptoms, they may or may not have awareness. And it, and part of it probably depends on the severity of their illness, what type of neurodegenerative process they have, et cetera. But there are some people that are definitely aware and experience subjective difficulties with their memory and will be able to tell you about this. And other people might have very little insight. And so regardless, it's very important to have a collateral historian, whether it's a family member, a spouse, a good friend, their adult child, but having that collateral historian really gives us a better sense of, of the impact on function and what's really happening at home. Okay. So let's say you're seeing a patient and whether the patient describes the problem or a family member describes a problem, you're concerned about the new cognitive symptoms. What questions do you ask? What do you look for in the history as you're assessing this patient? Yeah. Well, first, I like to know a little bit about just what areas they're struggling with. But it's also important to re remember, I want to know what they're still doing well. Right? I think in medicine, especially when somebody comes in with new neurologic symptoms or cognitive symptoms, we're quick to pick out what they're not doing well and really focus on those declines. But I also want to know what their preserved capacities are and what they are doing well. And I think that's really important as we're dealing with a challenging diagnosis like dementia to remember to go from a capacity stance rather than only thinking about the disability. But back on track with your question, I'm interested in knowing examples of where they're having challenges in their life. I'm interested in knowing about their past history. Do they have a history of obstructive sleep apnea or snoring? That'd be important to recognize. And that would be something we would want to make sure we optimize. Do they have a history of hearing loss? Oftentimes I see folks in our geriatrics clinic that come in with cognitive symptoms, but it's really hearing loss and they haven't been able to hear the conversations with their loved ones to be able to encode that new information. Do they have any history of a mood disorder like depression or anxiety that could be playing a role, substance abuse, neurologic conditions? So I'm really interested in really understanding their health to understand what impact those comorbidities could be making on their new symptoms. I'm also interested in knowing a bit about what medications they're on, what their current living situation is, what sorts of responsibilities or tasks they need to complete as part of their day-to-day -day functioning. And so it does take some time to, mm -hmm. to take a good history about cognitive impairment because we're really trying to discern not only what symptoms they're having, but how this impacts their life. 
I often like to look at the safety issues as well. Have they gotten lost in the neighborhood? Have they gotten lost while driving? Have they had any accidents while driving? Or have they left the burner on in the stove and had a uh, food fire or something like that? So all of these things are so important to uh, assess. And as you mentioned, it does take a lot of time to assess these patients. Well, we have the mental status exam. How effective is that? A mental status exam is really critical to do when you're evaluating somebody with new cognitive symptoms because, as we've all experienced in our practices, sometimes our overlearned language skills or communication skills can mask a person's cognitive deficit. So a person has just certain pleasantries and communication skills that might hide what sorts of deficits they're struggling with. So a mental status test really allows you to assess multiple different domains of cognition at once. And so they're very important. And so I would encourage all of our listeners that are healthcare clinicians to do a valid mental status exam as part of your workup. And we can certainly talk about the different types of exams and when to use what exam if you'd like. Well, maybe just a little bit on that, because we do have multiple mental status exams available. Have you found one that has advantages over the others? It really depends on the situation and what I'm trying to achieve. So in a situation where time is limited, and I'm mainly looking for a quick screening tool, do I need to worry about cognitive impairment or not? Perhaps I'm doing an annual wellness exam or a welcome to Medicare exam, and I want to do something that's going to just take a few minutes. I might do something like the mini cog. Mm-hmm. which is a great valid tool that can be used not to necessarily make the diagnosis of dementia, but to help us risk stratify versus a situation where I'm seeing somebody for the express purpose of their new cognitive symptoms. I'm going to want to do a more detailed multi-domain assessment like the Montreal Cognitive Evaluation or the Kochman Short Test of Mental Status or the St. Louis University's Mental Status Test. All of those tests are very good. They have good sensitivity and specificity. It's just a matter of making sure that when you are doing one of these mental status tests, you know the limitations of the test, that you feel very comfortable administering it, and that you do it in the way that it was validated. So we tend to try and use the questions just as it was validated in its initial trials. A common, well, relatively common situation is you have a patient that you're really concerned about the cognitive changes that have come to bear, but the mental status exam is normal. What do you do in that situation? So sometimes when there is a discrepancy between what the patient is telling me and what I'm seeing or what I'm finding on the mental status exam, that's a good opportunity to use neuropsychological testing. So some advanced testing that is going to go into much more detail and help us discern where this person's having challenges. So the neuropsychological testing isn't necessarily required in all patients that have cognitive impairment, but I use it in these types of challenging cases. Mm -hmm. And I've even had a few patients where I strongly suspected there was some cognitive impairment, yet even the formal psychometric test was normal. Does that rule out dementia? It doesn't because sometimes, you know, in situations where the person has a lot of 
cognitive reserve, perhaps has had a lot of education, that very subtle changes that you're seeing, knowing this person for a long time or that their family um, might be seeing, might not be detected on those neuropsychological tests. And so it might take a while. And so sometimes longitudinal assessment is useful. So I'm going to see you back in six months or 12 months, making sure that person knows that you're acknowledging some of the symptoms that they're having and that you're going to reassess them can be mm -hmm. useful. Okay. Well, I think we both agree that the history is the most important part of the assessment of the patient. But what about laboratory tests? What should we be ordering? At a bare minimum, everybody should have basic tests like a thyroid stimulating hormone. So a TSH, a pernicious anemia cascade. I have a really low threshold to check electrolytes and a CBC. That's a bare minimum. But depending on what the history yields and what the person's other risk factors might be, an overnight oximetry is often useful. Infectious disease screening like HIV or syphilis testing, everybody should probably have a depression screen. And so really the history is going to determine how far you need to cast that diagnostic net. Okay. And then how about head imaging? Should every patient that we think may have dementia receive some head imaging? I have a very low threshold to do CNS imaging. I think it can be very useful. First of all, we want to make sure that we're not missing a reversible cause of cognitive impairment, like a bleed, a stroke, normal pressure hydrocephalus, tumor, et cetera. So some sort of structural neuroimaging test can be useful, like a non-contrast MRI or CT scan. But I think as we're moving more toward also looking at the etiology of a person's neurodegenerative process. So what subtype of dementia does a person have? Either an MRI or even now we're starting to do more functional neuroimaging can be useful. So if we're really trying to investigate the cause of a person's new cognitive symptoms, it's very worthwhile to do it, some sort of structural or functional neuroimaging test. Do you have a preference if you're just going to get a straightforward imaging of CT versus MRI? I would prefer MRI. I think you'll get a lot more bang for the buck there in terms of really assessing the degree of atrophy, where they're having atrophy, if there's any significant burden of ischemic disease. So if MRI is available, MRI is usually preferred. Okay. How about physical exam? I know there's really no classic physical findings for Alzheimer's disease, but what might we look for? Yeah. So the physical exam is also going to help us determine if there could be a non-Alzheimer's type of uh, neurodegenerative process. So I'm looking for any Parkinsonian symptoms looking for tremor, I'm looking at their gait, I'm listening to their language and communication skills. And also, of course, I'm just doing a good job as a primary care physician, listening to their heart and lungs, et cetera. And, and again, making sure that I'm taking good care of their other comorbidities as well. But, you know, in Alzheimer's disease, we shouldn't see too much in the way of new sensory or motor changes on their neurologic exam. And so if we do see some of those changes or Parkinsonian symptoms, et cetera, then I think, or Parkinsonian signs, I think that we'll want to investigate further. Mm -hmm. I think most patients with new dementias are managed, are diagnosed and managed by primary care providers. 
When is a neurology consultation indicated? I think having a good working relationship with our colleagues in neurology is is really critical as we're seeing more and more patients with dementia. And so I'll often refer on to my colleagues from neurology when it's an atypical case. So when it's a rapidly progressive form of cognitive impairment, and I'm worried about an atypical etiology, or when there is a lot of crossover with their ischemic vascular disease, and we're having to make decisions about antiplatelets and anticoagulation, or other types of atypical situations. But I think, honestly, managing Patients with Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, these more common types of neurodegenerative processes is definitely within the wheelhouse of a primary care physician. Okay. Is it important to identify the specific type of dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy body, normal pressure, hydrocephalus? It is important, especially as new therapies are on the horizon. I think that identifying the subtype is useful. I think that um, families and people suffering with dementia also like to have as much information about what to expect as possible. And so if we can garner that specificity based on their clinical exam or their imaging or additional testing, most people do find that more information is better. Okay. Well, I think you'd probably agree. We don't really have highly effective treatment options for our patients with uh, various forms of dementia. So once we've done our job and correctly diagnosed the patient with dementia, identified the type of dementia, what's our role after that? This is where the hard work begins, right? So I think, you know, to our listeners that are primary care clinicians, it's so important that the person with dementia and their support partner realize that we're on this journey with them. This could be a five, 10, 12-year process. And so it's really important that they know that they're not alone because this can be a super isolating disease. And so knowing that we're part of that, what they might need today might be different in six months, might be different in 12 months. And so we're going to see them at regular intervals, I think is super important. Number two, primary care clinicians really need to understand where they're at with their cognitive impairment, because this is going to impact how we manage their other chronic conditions. It might impact how we manage their diabetes or their heart failure if we know that this person has cognitive impairment. And then also we know that we're going to need to work closely with the support partners and care partners to provide education, to provide support, to provide additional information about how to help them best partner with their loved one at home. And then to be aware of different medications or therapies on the horizon that their patient might be eligible for. Yeah, I think most patients and their families want the patient to be managed at home as long as possible. So as you said, it's so important that you almost have two patients. I mean, you got to take care of the caregiver as well, because if they burn out, the patient's likely going to end up in a long-term care facility, which nobody really wants. The other thing I try to do with an early cognitive impairment patient is to get their advanced directives established while they still have ability to give input and make it a valid uh, decision. So that's, that's also important. Erica, we've had limited treatment options, uh, and we've had them for years, but uh, I don't think anybody's been highly impressed with their effects. But in the past year or two, we've now had a couple new options, the monoclonal antibodies, aducanumab, lucanumab has come on the market and FDA approved. 
What's your opinion on these uh, new products? Yeah. So I think we're at a turning point where we now have these disease-modifying medications on the horizon. So this is exciting. And several studies have looked at these medications. And these studies have revealed that these medications effectively do remove amyloid from the brain, which is exciting to see. And in some individuals may slightly delay cognitive decline, but they don't necessarily improve cognitive function. That's the challenge. So looking for more clinical evidence of improvements in cognitive function, we haven't necessarily seen that. They mainly delay the decline. I think it's also important to recognize that there are some unique side effects associated with this class of medications, including edema or swelling in the brain and microhemorrhages in the brain. So as primary care providers, we need to get more comfortable providing education about these new therapies as they become available, but also triaging adverse effects and also interpreting biomarkers because a lot of these therapies will require evidence of biomarker proven Alzheimer's disease to be eligible for these therapies. You mentioned biomarkers, and that's probably going to be important as we progress into the future, managing our um, dementia patients. Talk a little bit about biomarkers. So when we think about biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease, we're looking for evidence of neurodegeneration, and we're looking at evidence of amyloid and tau, and that's how we think about those different classes of biomarkers. And so a functional neuroimaging test like a PET scan could be an example of a biomarker, or We also have CSF available biomarkers that can be ordered. And then on the horizon, I think during our careers, we'll also see blood-based biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. And so while we're not advocating that every patient that comes to our office needs to have evaluation of biomarkers, as we get more sophisticated and ha- with the availability of disease-modifying treatments, we'll probably be getting more biomarkers on patients that might be eligible for some of those therapies. So we're learning quite a bit about the pathophysiology of especially Alzheimer's disease, and uh, that's going to impact our evaluation. Hopefully someday we'll have some better management options. Well, Erica, you've given us lots of interesting information about dementia. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Yeah, sure. So first of all, primary care clinicians are so critical in the delivery of high quality dementia care because primary care clinicians know their patients. They know them longitudinally. They know what their needs are. They know their support system. And so think of dementia as a chronic condition that we need to partner with our patients and their support partners on. And so I don't want primary care clinicians to be afraid to make the diagnosis. They can effectively and compassionately make and deliver the diagnosis. And then the other thing I always think about is when we make that diagnosis of dementia, it really becomes that organizing principle of care. And so it impacts how we manage chronic conditions. It impacts advanced care planning, as you mentioned, Dr. Chetka. It impacts safety, like driving and finances. And so it's really that overarching principle of care that helps us to deliver high value, compassionate care to this group of older adults. 
We've been discussing the approach to the older patient with new cognitive symptoms with Dr. Erica Tong, an internist and geriatrician from the Mayo Clinic. Erica, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music